Make sure that's on. Okay. Hey, so uh, Jeff and the gang, the gang meaning over 40 people uh, from Grace Chapel are en route to Alaska, even as we speak. They're probably in a plane somewhere over Iowa. I don't know what time they left, but they're en route. Uh, Jeff and Deb and, and their family and our youth pastors and uh, their associates and a bunch of youth and some family. So um, I just want to lift up uh, them before we get going. And by the way, Jeff called me yesterday and said, hey, don't forget to tell people to keep up on their giving while I'm gone. <laughs> Last summer, he, he calls it the June swoon. Every church uh, goes through uh, a giving low cycle in June as people go on vacations and this and that. But we have platforms online, giving stations. We don't pass a plate here at Grace Chapel, but there's boxes here. There's a kiosk out there. And so just want to encourage you to keep up your giving during June. Let's, let's just pray as we open up. Jesus, we thank you so much for uh, your activity in our lives and for those 44 people who are on their way to Alaska to serve you and to serve the people um, in the area they're going. Uh, we just lift up them. And I know with 44 people, man, everything they do is going to be time consuming and uh, so many details and and uh, tickets and this and that and uh, transportation. So I just pray this morning that you would just work out every single kink along the way so that those guys can can concentrate on ministry. And uh, I just pray that uh, lives would be changed uh, in them as they serve and through them to the people for whom they serve. So we lift them up. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been in a, a quite a lengthy series, sermon series, uh, the last uh, several weeks that we've called Seasons. And during that uh, series, Jeff has explored several seasons of our life. You might remember, if you've been around for a little while, we started out hidden talking about biblical manhood, spent a couple of weeks on that, and that was transformational in our thinking. Then we moved, it was the gal's turn, we moved to uh, biblical womanhood, and then uh, on to some other seasons of our life. He, he uh, explored the, a gray season, a single season, a season of work, a season of transformation, and uh, last week we talked about a season of giving, and... Uh, so we're, we're, today I want to try to transition us out of that. So uh, we're going to make a transition from a, the seasons. We'll kind of explore that. But this sermon is going to kind of be a little bit of a turning point and kind of lead into uh, the next sermon series, which Jeff is calling, He Will Make Your Path Straight. And so that's kind of what we're up to this morning. So uh, when Jeff, Jeff asked me to fill in while he was gone, I was thinking, okay, seasons, uh, what, what season um, speaks to me personally right about now? And it took me all of about two seconds for that to come to me. Um, you see, I'm getting old and broken down. There's gray in the beard. I have a grandkid for crying out loud. That's really strange. I don't know if she's here right now, but that's crazy to me. Um, I can't run with the big dogs anymore. Um, you start thinking about what's significant and what's important in life. And it's kind of a weird season. Some people call it midlife crisis. I don't know that it's that serious, but uh, we all go through that. Uh, I'm in my early 50s and my friends that are in the same age stage kind of going through the same thing. And, uh, you know, the best physical days are behind us. Uh, hopefully the best kind of productive days and ministry days are ahead, but you can't help but start thinking about, okay, so, you know, 
I'm over halfway there unless I live to be 106. And so what happens next or what happens all through that? And it's just kind of a strange season. Um, It's the season where 50 something guys go out and buy red Corvette convertibles out of the blue. Hey, honey, look what I bought today or your first motorcycle. Um, I already have a trophy wife, so I don't need another one of those. But it's that it's that season that you start doing goofy stuff like that. Right. And uh, you start talking about checking things off the bucket list. Um, I'm going to pick on one guy this morning. He's here somewhere. Dave Hare. Okay, so I didn't tell him I was going to pick on there. He's right there. Okay, so uh, he's my buddy. He's soon to be family. Okay, so have you heard Jeff say that Jeff made an agreement with his son, Josh, that uh, Josh got tired of, you know, the dad, dad, pastor guy, (laughs) pastor guy, uh, you know, mentioning his son in the sermon. And so Josh made this deal and negotiated with Jeff so that every time Jeff mentions Josh in a sermon, he owes Josh 10 bucks. Well, I never made such a deal with my kids. I said, hey, I'm a pastor's kid. I went through it. So every opportunity I have to use you as an example and embarrass you, I'm going for it. Tough luck, kid, right? Well, so Dave is about ready to join that club because our daughter, Whitney, is marrying their son, David. And so part of the family, dude. um, so, So Dave comes to me a couple of months ago. He's like, okay, I got these bucket list items. He's the same age stage bucket list items. We got to start checking these off. He said, I'm going to jump out of an airplane next week. So he did that. Uh, I'm going to get me my first tattoo. All right. So give him a hard time. You got to check out his tattoo. He's got a cross here with uh, speaking of Philippians, a verse from Philippians, except the tattoo artist misspelled Philippians. (laughs) And there's another word that's misspelled on there. Dave says, well, I just chalk it up to an imperfect tattoo for an imperfect guy. Right. So maybe he did it on purpose. But anyway, one of the things uh, he said in that conversation, he said, I want to do this tough mutter race. You got to do it with me. So last weekend we went to northern Kentucky down to Kentucky Speedway. We did this tough mutter. Um, By the way, he and I both said there wasn't anything tough about that. We just flew through it like it was nothing. Right. But anyway, you know, uh, Kim and I about, uh, I don't know, a year, year or so ago, we came this close to starting our own business tree. And I may still do it whenever I get the time. But we were going to call it Bucket List Outfitters. And I went actually went ahead and got like the reserve the domain name Bucket List Outfitters dot com. And because I'm convinced that, you know, the 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 pull to achieve something like that, to do something significant, to check something off the list is so, I mean, it's just so compulsive to us. I I think people would pay to have somebody help them check things off their bucket list. I've always wanted to climb whatever, or I've always wanted to run a marathon, or I've always wanted to learn how to play the guitar. It's it's so it's so pulling to us that I think that's I I could make a business out of helping people check off their bucket list. Well, this started for in earnest for me about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago when I literally couldn't run with the big dogs anymore. And in my athletic career, all I had to look forward to was to do the same old thing, except start doing it slower. And that, that just didn't interest me at all. So for me, this is what was next on the list.
So that started a three-year, every other week, I'm not going to call it a career, but uh, bull riding, being the chaplain at Fox Hollow Rodeo. And here's the Kevin, you're a moron story for the week. I, people were walking in the door, realizing that I was going to speak and saying, okay, what's the Kevin, you're a moron story? We've been waiting for it. Tell Jeff, you need to have him speak er, you know, sooner. Because So Kevin, you're a moron story is that for those three years, I'm for, for, over 40 years old. In my head, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm going to be the next PBR star, and everybody's going to say, whoa, look at the old guy. Unbeknownst to me, I wasn't very good at it, and that never came to fruition. And one day, uh, close to Christmas time, got thrown off, got stomped on in the chest, and blew a hole in this lung, and I spent the next three days at Bethesda North with a chest tube sticking out, and Kim's like, um, I think we're done with this. <laughs> so anyway, why, why is that so important? Why is it so compelling to us to do something big? Lately for me, it's I want to own a world record. I want so badly to own a world record. I don't even care what it is. I just want a world record. And Kim says, well, how about you just be satisfied with a world record you already own by being the most annoying husband because you won't shut up about being wanting a world record. Why is it? What's this big deal? Why is it behind all of this thinking? And I'm not the only one. You guys, and it's not a 50-something guy thing. We all suffer from this. Um, why is it so important that we do something big. I want to show you a video. I asked people as they were coming into church today, um, if you were to do something big in your life, what would it be? Here's the video. Can you see it? This is Brad. What would you do something big? And he's like, uh, uh, he wants to get rid of all the hate. Okay. Here's uh, Karen. What would you, oh, you can't see it over here. Oh, See it? It goes on for a long time. That was supposed to be funny. But anyway, those poor people were helping to make my point. I was asking several people, if you were to do something big in your life, what would it be? Win the lottery. I want to go on a big trip. I want to do this. I want to do that. Well, the question for this morning is, if I were to ask God... What was something big that you would want me to do? If I was, if I was sitting you know, by his throne, he's right here, and I would say, God, I want to do something really big. I want to do something incredibly amazing with you. I want to accomplish something for you. I want to come alongside with you and do something incredible and something big. What should it be? What do you think his answer is going to be? See, we say, we say things are big. We have all these kind of things, but what means, what does that mean to God? What does God think as big? And I want to suggest a few things um, that I've grown to understand that are huge to God, absolutely ginormous to God. Um, and these things are based on a series of lessons that I wrote for our archery ministry, His Pins. And when I wrote those lessons in that, in that book, we called this series of five lessons, we called them the upside down archer. Because that's really, you've heard Jeff say this before. You've heard him say that if you really want to know what's important to God or what God thinks about a certain subject, all you have to do is ask what the world thinks and then completely turn that upside down and you pretty much got God's answer. 
Okay, so we're going to explore some of those things, some of those upside down things, things that are absolutely huge to God. Number one, I call this the last place winner. Okay, you want to be something, do something huge to God. Well, you strive for last place. In Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus was asked to a dinner party and uh, a bunch of fancy, important people were there. And here's what he said about that. He said, when he noticed that uh, how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told him this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all of the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God loves it. It is huge to God when we are humble and when we're unselfish. When we make a conscious decision to take the smallest piece instead of the bigger piece. When I stand in front of the grill and I have all my guests and I make a conscious decision to take the burnt hot dog so that my guests can have the better one. When I consciously decide to take the worst seat in the house behind the pole so that so-and-so can have a better view. Those things are huge in God's sight. When we're humble, when we lower ourselves, when we say to other people, you're more important than me, that is huge in God's sight. We've read this, this is one of Jeff's favorite, uh, talking about Philippians again. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have listened to the words here, I'm going to kind of highlight a few of them. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united, united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, or if any common sharing in the spirit, sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, like-minded, having the same love, Being one in the spirit and one of mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, the interests of the others. You know, if our goal, which it should be, to be conformed to the image of Christ, what's that mean? Well, it means being like-minded. It means being united, sharing in his spirit. How am I like-minded with Christ? By being humble and unselfish and lowering myself so that others can be raised up. Strive to be last place. In God's eyes, that's huge. Number two, um, we talked last week at length about the season of giving and about the importance of being a, a giver. Uh, Jeff used the example, you know, how, how much joy it brings to give somebody a gift. Well, um, you know, it's, it's fairly easy to be joyful giving somebody a gift because you've purchased that for that person and, and it's just fun. But when it comes to giving something that we own, that we kind of cherish or that we kind of want to hang on to, you know, you've heard, uh, you've heard that saying that it's more blessed to give than receive, right? Parents love to say that kind of silliness to our kids. We like to say that to ourselves. We like to agree with that. Oh, it's more it's more blessed to, to give than receive. We like saying that, but down deep inside so many times, um, if we would 
be honest with ourselves, we would say, yeah, it's kind of more fun to get stuff than it is to give my stuff away. All right. This lesson I'm call, or this this lesson I called in the His Pens book. I said I called this getting giddy about giving instead of getting giddy about getting. Okay, God wants us to get giddy, to get happy, to get joyful when we give. So you're going to help me. I'm going to help you learn this. All right, getting giddy about giving instead of getting giddy about getting. Repeat after me. Getting giddy about getting giving instead of getting giddy about you're not doing very well. Okay, so let's start over again. You can read it, all right? Getting giddy about giving instead of getting giddy about getting. God gets absolutely jazzed when we give. Why is that? Well, because God is a giving God. It's part of his nature. It's part of his character. What's the most famous Bible verse in the Bible? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. God is a giving God. It's in his very nature. And if we want to be conformed to him, if we want to be living out his image in our lives, then that's how we operate according to that image. We are giving people. God created us in that image, and he designed us to work best when we give. That's why it feels good to give when we can get ourselves to do that. But when we go against God's design, when we hunker down and keep our stuff, it ends up not feeling so good. Why? Because we're working against God's, uh, his image and his uh, design for our lives. Think about this. Do this little experiment. I want you to think about in your head somebody in your sphere of influence, somebody that you know, um, that is just happy and joyful and kind of a bubbly person all the time. I think we all have somebody in our lives that is just a happy person, that is generally joyful and happy and bubbly. Can you think of that person? Okay. Now, I want you to think about that person. Is that person generally a giver or a getter? Almost without exception, you would say that that person is a giving person, is an unselfish person. Why? Because that's God's design playing out in that person's life. When we work according to his design, it just works better. Number three, I call this altitude driving. You've heard the phrase, uh, maybe not if you're younger, but you've heard the phrase, take the high road. Um, I was, uh, when I speak to young people these days, I'm always amazed at all the phrases that they don't know. And I just kind of assume as an older person, uh, all these phrases that people know and the, and the young people these days don't know. But to take the high road, what I, I was at a... Speaking of phrases you don't know or things that young people don't know, I was, I was with our archery program. This was a couple years ago, and we were visiting um, a junior high school. So these 6th, 7th, 8th graders were all sitting there, and, and um, I, I, w- I wanted to know how much time we had left. And so I asked this young girl uh, in the front row, I said, so what time does cl- what time's class over so I know how much time we have left? And she said, um, well, I don't know. It, up on the wall was... A clock with hands. Okay, it wasn't it? Was a analog clock, a big clock on the wall in the gym. And she said, "Well, I don't, I don't really know, but whenever that one stick gets to the three, that's when the bell rings." And I said, "Well, what time is that?" And she's like, "Well, I don't know. The, there's two sticks. That one longer stick. Whenever it gets and it points to the three, then the bell rings." <laughs> 
kids these days. But anyway, take the high road. What does it mean to take the high road? Well, that means doing something right, even though you don't feel like it. Or doing something very well, even though you don't feel like it. Take the high road. Uh, During one of the times that Jesus was speaking to a crowd, he encouraged people to do the right thing, even though it was the hard thing. And he said, this this is Matthew chapter 7. Very familiar. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Every day, you and I are going to have decisions to make. Do I take the high road? Do I do the right thing, even though it's the hard thing? Or do I wimp out and take the easy road because it's easier? Even though it might not be It might not be wrong, but it might be less right. Do I purposely, as a kid, sit next to uh, the the outcast kid because that kid doesn't have any friends? Do I join in with my coworkers or my family telling off-color jokes or tweaking the books or doing this even though I know that it's wrong? The easy way is to go along. The hard way is to do it right. Do I join in on gossip and tell these juicy stories about so-and-so because it kind of makes me look good or do I hold my tongue? Do I do the hard thing? Sometimes the question is not do I do right or wrong, but sometimes the question is do I do less right or do I do more right? You know, the, the wide gate's the easy way because it doesn't take effort. The narrow gate is the hard way that God wants and God just gets so hyper excited when his kids take the narrow gate, the narrow road and the the small gate and do the hard thing, even though it's hard. You know, one one kind of a little nuance to this that that we do, we, you and I, we do so often um, do. I want to I want to make people feel a little bit better about me. So I tell a juicy story about somebody else because it props me up. Well, that's that's the easy thing to do. Instead of propping myself up by just being an honor, honorable person, a person with integrity. God, when we do the hard thing, when we take the narrow gate, God has to just love that about his kids. I could just picture him. He's sitting on his throne. There's a couple of angels there. And he looks down and he says, look at that. Did you check that out? My girl. That's my girl. She did the hard thing. I know that was hard, but she did it anyway. That's my kid. Man, she could have caved, but she didn't, or he didn't. That's absolutely huge to God when we take the hard way and honor him instead of taking the easy way out. Number four, let's all be losers. Okay, let's all be losers, right? One day Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for his soul? So what's it mean to lose your life or to save it? That's really confusing, right? God wants us to lose our lives. Let's all be losers. Well, in this context, gaining my life means keeping control of my life. When I when I want to keep control, when I do to do it my way, when I want to be in charge of everything, I want to I'm saving my life. Quote unquote. 
God wants me to lose my life. God wants me to set my life in his hands. God wants me to say, I'm willing to give up control of my life, to give you control, to let you do it your way. That is so counterintuitive to how the world works. Again, see what the world likes to do, turn it upside down. That's what God likes to do. God wants us to be losers. God wants us to lose our lives to him, to give him control. And when we do that, you know, when we, when we try to save our lives, that's a temporary fix or it's a temporary high or whatever. I, I, I save my life by keeping it in. It, it temporarily feels good because I'm in control, but ultimately it, it doesn't work out because I'm not trustworthy to have that control. When I lose myself temporarily, it feels kind of icky because I'm giving something away that's kind of cherished. But in the long run, God, or long run, God blesses that and gives me over and above uh, because of that faith. Number five, speaking of faith, I call this looking forward to the hindsight. Uh, some of you have heard this before. Um, several years ago, just in a, in a short period of time, I had several people ask me what the definition of faith is. And faith is one of those things that's kind of hard to, de- to define. If somebody would ask you, so what, what is faith? What does that mean? Um, most of us would go, well, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, okay, here's, no, that, uh, and we would hem and haw about it, okay? So I, I didn't want to hem and haw anymore. I wanted kind of a working man's definition. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to, I'm not going to leave this chair until I figure this out for myself. And I came up with this definition that faith is the ability to look forward to the hindsight. Hindsight is another one of those uh, phrases that is not used all that much anymore. But hindsight, you know what that means. That means that at some point in the future, you can look back and see clearly what had happened. So if I'm a quarterback in a really important game and my receivers, I have two receivers left and right and one down the middle, and I have to choose in a split second, do I pass left or right or down the middle? And I choose to pass to the right and it gets intercepted and run back for a touchdown. That quarterback would probably say, well, in hindsight, I should have passed to the other side. Okay, hindsight means I can look back in time and I can see it clearly because it already happened. Well, to me, the concept of faith is right now in the moment. I'm scared. I'm confused. I'm wishy-washy. I don't know what's going to happen. But if I have faith that I know for certain and I can be certain that at some point in the future, I will be able to look back and say, in hindsight, oh, God, so that's why you were doing that. That's the little path that you had for me. Oh, okay, I get it. Well, without faith, all I'm left with is confusion, anger, anxiety. With faith, I may still have those right now, but I know with certainty that I'm going to be able to look back because I know God is working, and that makes me feel better. God loves it when I exhibit faith. That is huge to him. Again, he can look down at his son or his daughter and say, oh, that's my boy. I know he's scared right now, but I'm working on it. Unbeknownst to him, I got it all worked out. Two months from now, five years from now, ten years from now, he's going to be able to look back and he's going to be able to credit me. Still God talking here. Credit me for working in his life. But he has faith now and that is huge. I love that in my kid. That's huge to God. So what is big to God? 
I think this can be summed up in a couple of verses in Deuteronomy. I love these verses. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is uh, verse 12 and 13. It says, Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. So what does it mean to God to do big things? What are, what's big to God? How do we honor him with our lives while we walk in his ways? We observe his commands. We pay attention to his decrees. And we love him with all of our heart and all of our soul. That's what's big to God. It's not bad to have ambitions. It's not bad to feel restless about I want to do something important and, and, and have fun with it. But when we think about our lives and we think about what is important to God, what's important to God is things like being humble, being unselfish, exhibiting faith. Those things are huge to God. If I want to conform to his image and be united with him, those are the things that I should get jazzed about. And so this, this sermon has been a little bit, I mean, Jeff talks about this a lot too. When we're working on sermons, God's preaching to us way, way before we're preaching to you. And this week has been kind of that for me. God saying, come on, dude. Exhibit big things that are big to me. And uh, quit with the little things that seem to be big to you but are not all important. But, and when I operate according to his design and not the world's design, things tend to go better. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, thank you again for this morning. Uh, a chance to um, just hang out with a whole bunch of your family members in one place, and um, as we exit this place and go off to work this week, that we would take you with us, um, that we spend more time at work and with our families than we do at church, and, and we want that to be a part of you also. And so at the workplace, at the play place, at the pool, at the vacation time, we, we want to take you with us and make you a part of all of those things. We love you. We praise you. You're an awesome God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Happy Sunday.